Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts 3, we'll... Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we look at your inspired and errant word, we ask that we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We ask, Father, that as we look at historical literature, we would be able to imitate those actions of the early church that are godly and also avoid those actions of the early church that are ungodly, as that's how we must interpret historical literature. Father, uh, guide us, give us wisdom, help us to know truth, your truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Adversity, trials, difficulties, challenges, we've all had them, some more, some less, but as part of a fallen world, we have challenges in this world. I think of Booker T. Washington. Probably you know who he is. He lived most of his life in the 1800s, died in 1915. He was the first black person in American history to be on both a U.S. stamp and a U.S. coin, the 50-cent piece in the 1940s, and he deserved both. He had a lot of adversity in his life. He was born to his mother, Jane, before the Civil War. She served as the cook on a plantation as a slave. That meant he was a slave. Born into slavery in a one-room house with a very large hearth where she would cook all the food on the plantation every single day. Somewhere by age four or five, somewhere in there, Booker began to work long days. He would work from sunrise to sunset as a four or five-year-old, pulling bags of wheat around the plantation. That was his job. Yet it was clear to all that he was brilliant beyond what probably anyone had encountered before. It becomes a little unclear how he learned to read and write. But we do know that somewhere around four or five, his mother acquired a book. And at four in the morning each day, before he would have to work, he learned to read and write. The probability is that the white school teacher would join him at four in the morning, recognizing his brilliance and taught him to read and write, although historically we're not certain of that fact. We know that his father was white, but we don't know his father's name. Probably a plantation owner somewhere in the vicinity. We also know that soon after the Civil War ended, he and his mother moved from Virginia to West Virginia, where she married somebody whose first name is Washington, which Booker took for his last name, Booker T. Washington. And now he was free. But they were poor, 
and he had to work in the salt mines. And so he would work long days, often again from sunrise to sunset. And the salt mine owner's wife, Viola, took pity on him. She saw that he was brilliant. She paid him hourly, not only for his work, but one or two hours a day she paid him to go to school. And so Booker began to learn. We know that somewhere between age 10 and 11, he left home. He traveled 500 miles on foot to Hampton Institute, where the headmaster was General Armstrong. And he convinced General Armstrong to hire him as a janitor for his room board and the opportunity to listen to some classes. Again, not many classes. He was working most days. But his brilliance was head and shoulders above anyone else in the institute. So General Armstrong found a white benefactor to pay for Booker to go to school. After graduating, he then went to seminary in Washington, D.C. And upon his graduation, it was now about 1885 in Alabama the legislation decided that they would open what they called a colored school. They set aside $2,000 to open this colored institute, and they went to General Armstrong, and they said, who should run it? By that, they meant which white man should run it. But General Armstrong said Booker T. Washington should run it, and he opened Tuskegee Institute, which became Tuskegee College. Upon his death in 1915, having started with $2,000, he had a campus with 100 buildings, all well-appointed, a regular student body of 1,500, a faculty of 200, and an endowment of $2 million back in 1915. He wrote a book, Up From Slavery, and in the book he tells us that he wanted to marry the academic world and the academic Christian world. He was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. And he insisted that Christ be taught alongside academics. There was chapel every day. There was church. There were missionaries sent out from Tuskegee Institute. They had Sunday school. They incorporated the academic and the academic Christian world together. Again, towards the end of his life, when he wrote the book, he talks about this. He said, my life motto is to, in the disadvantage, always look for the advantage, and then to follow the advantage. The man was disadvantaged, wasn't he? He was born a slave. Somebody else had to pay his education. He would start his days at 4 a.m. in the morning, as a little boy, just to learn to read and write, he was heavily disadvantaged. He saw the advantage through Christ and the academic world. He followed the advantage, and he made a difference in our world. Trial, tribulation, hardship, we all have them. For we who know Christ, often it is hard work and the empowerment of God's Spirit that helps us to turn a disadvantage into an advantage. 
But sometimes there is such a disadvantage that our hard work doesn't even matter. And all we can do is fall upon God and ask him for a touch of his grace. That's exactly what we have in today's text. I want to pick up in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth in Acts chapter 4, verse 22, will discover that he's like 40, 41 years old. So he has been lame from birth for 40 or 41 years. He has been carried to this gate every single day, all day long. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they lamed daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate. The Beautiful Gate is one of seven gates in the old city of Jerusalem. It's the only one that is permanently sealed. It has several names. It's called the Beautiful Gate, the Golden Gate, and the Eastern Gate. You have the Mount of Olives. You go down to the Garden of Gethsemane, take a hard left, and there's the gate. And if the gate was open, you would go right in to what we call the Western Wall. Sometimes people call it the Wailing Wall. Nobody in the Middle East would do that. And up top is the Temple Mount. That's the gate we're talking about. He'd been laid at the beautiful gate to ask alms, handouts, of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up immediately. And he was on his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him. We'll see in Acts chapter 4. They've been walking by him three times a day for 41 years. They know his parents. They know this guy. And they recognize him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. Now verse 1 speaks of Peter and John heading to the temple in the ninth hour. I've already told you that's 3 o'clock. Now what's very interesting to me is that we have in the 21st century a very strong division between Judaism and Christianity, so we don't always see the overlap that occurred for probably 20 years after the ascension of Christ. What actually occurs is this. For at least 20 years, maybe longer, Christ followers would go to the local synagogues, the local Jewish churches, or they'd go to the Temple Mount. They'd listen to the same sermons. They'd be involved in the same times of prayer, three times a day, in the morning, the late afternoon, and evening. Really, the only difference in those first couple decades is that Christ followers would never sacrifice an animal. Why? 
Because Jesus is the final sacrifice. Isn't that what Hebrews 10 says? He is the atonement, the payment of our sin. He sat down on the right-hand side of the Father, not to rest as a sign, to tell us, die, it is finished. He has paid the penalty of our sin. There is no sacrifice we need to make. As a response in worship, we obey him, but we don't sacrifice because Jesus is the atonement. But for the first few decades, that was really the only difference in the church experience of Judaism and Christianity. In fact, the change won't even occur in Jerusalem. It will occur in south-central Turkey and the church of Antioch and take another three years to get to Jerusalem. The church at Antioch is the first church that begins to plant Christian churches and goes by the idea or the identity of Christ followers. We knew we were following Christ. We just didn't have that Christian ubric. And so Peter and John are exactly where they ought to be. They're going to the middle time of the day prayer. Now I find this very interesting because they're praying in the morning, they're praying in the late afternoon, they're praying in the evening. You know that's the biblical pattern, that's the early church pattern, that's the prophetic pattern, that's the apostolic pattern, praying three times a day. You think of Daniel in Daniel 6 where there is a decree, a silly, silly decree, that for 30 days no one can pray to God, but only to the king. And you remember Daniel will have none of it. He's already a prisoner. He was carried into Babylon and now the Medo Persian Empire. He's part of the exiled people. And yet he would go to the window and three times a day, Daniel 6, he prayed in the morning, the late afternoon, and the evening. In Psalm 55, 17, it says that they cry out to God in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening. It's actually an illustration or an allusion to the way that Jews pray in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening. Here we have Peter and John going to the temple. We can make the assumption that they probably were there in the morning. They're probably going to be there in the late afternoon, three times a prayer. In fact, the early church, we have a manual that tells us how the early church acted. It's called the Didache, which means teaching. It's late first century, early second century, and it tells us that the early church prayed three times a day. So we have the prophets, the apostles, the early church. We have really all of Scripture, and they're praying three times a day. I don't think it's a command, but... It certainly ought not be ignored. The church, the church, ought to be a praying church because prayer matters. Interacting with God matters. Now, we're not totally sure what was a part of their prayers. We know this, that they would always cite Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what we call the Old Testament Shema. We know that they would cite the Ten Commandments. Imagine how revolutionary it would be in our society if three times a day we cited the Ten Commandments. We can't even put them up in school. They cited them three times a day. Boy, do we need that in our society. And then probably some form of an acronym, maybe ACTS, time of adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication, 
all of this in the morning, in the late afternoon, and in the evening as they poured out their heart to God. So Peter and John are exactly where we would expect them to be. It's probably, oh, they're probably Highland attenders. It's probably 303 for the three o'clock service. And, and they're on their way to the beautiful gate, the golden gate, the eastern gate, and they see this guy. And they're not too busy. They're, they're going to a service. They're not too busy for someone who has need. I didn't say this in any of the other services because uh, I knew that my youngest is at our Weston campus because my wife plays the piano for the Weston campus uh, once a month. She's there today. And I didn't want her to be embarrassed, but it reminds me of my youngest daughter, Hannah. Hannah lives in Minneapolis, except she comes home once a month, which is like one time too few than she should come home every month. Um, she drives around in her car, and she always has food, and she always has personal effects, and when she sees people in need, she gives it to them. Uh, she's a grad student. She's got a lot of money. And, uh, but she's been doing this for years. That's Peter and John. And so they see this man. They, they don't have embarrassment of seeing him. You know how we act when we see a beggar because we have them in our cities and we have them all around the world and they're over here and man, there's something really interesting as we walk by and we don't make eye contact because if you make eye contact, you kind of have to, to do something. But, but Peter says, look at me. And John agrees, and, and the beggar knows that he's not to make eye contact, but he makes eye contact because he's been told to. And Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And in typical Peter fashion, he's not the most patient guy, he grabs the guy and pulls him up. I like the language given to me by uh, one particular individual, uh, he writes as follows. Verse 7, he said, Perhaps only medical people can fully appreciate the meaning of the words. The word translated feet is only used by Luke and nowhere else in Scripture. It indicates his discrimination, different parts of the human heel. He uses medical terms. The phrase ankle bones is a medical phrase found nowhere else in Scripture. The word leaping up describes the coming together suddenly in the socket of something that was out of place, the articulation of a joint. And here's this man. Picture him. It's really pitiful. It's pitiful. Every morning before sunrise, a few people drag him here. After sunset, they take him back. He must, he must have an incredible stench. He can't go anywhere to go to the restroom, but he's been there from early morning till late at night. And he makes eye contact with Peter and John, or he sees them. He sees that they're good possibilities, and he begins that beggar wail, a mite, a mite. Won't you grant a mite? knowing that almsgiving is meritorious in Judaism, won't you give a mite in the name of God? And he's sitting there at a beautiful gate. Now, we don't have this gate today. It's, 
It's one of seven. It's the only one closed. Let me tell you a little history of the gate because it's an important gate. This particular gate, uh, it's been closed since 810 when the Muslims took over. You can see that it's outlined. This is the gate, the beautiful gate, the eastern gate, the golden gate. The Muslims took over in 810 and they sealed it. And then the Crusaders, not our finest hour by any means, in 1102 they opened the gate. And then you remember Saladin. He's kind of the George Washington of the Muslim world. He gathers the Muslim world and for the first time unites them. He's the Sultan of Egypt and they drive out, for the most part, the Crusaders. They hold on a little bit in acres, but eventually they'll be driven out of that as well. And he closes it up again. And then in 1541, the lawgiver, Kunin, Suleiman the Magnificent, reopens it and then he closes it again. And that's what we have today. But it was a magnificent gate. Josephus, who is the first century historian, in his first book on the war, tells us what the gate looked like, which is very different than what it looks like today. But he tells us what it looked like at this point. He says this. The gate was one of the best spots in the entire city of Jerusalem. It was 70 feet high, much higher than where you see the Roman arches, much higher. It was 70 feet high and 60 feet wide. It was overlaid with Corinthian bronze and was such a work of art that it far exceeded in value those gates plated with silver and plated in gold. And that's where he sat. And rather than look away, Peter looked at him, told him to look him in the eye, pulled him up. He had places to go, people to see, events to engage in. But he was not too busy for ministry, and he cared about this individual. And God did the miraculous. God still does the miraculous. Think of yourself, Christ's follower. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, that's us. That's us prior to Christ, dead, decrepit, dry bones. And God does a work in our heart. And by faith, we believe in Christ. And we go from death to life, enemies of the cross, to one that would call Jesus brother. An eternity separated from God in hell, to one in heaven, a future and a hope, a destiny in a place not made with human hands. God does the miraculous, but not only in our hearts. Sometimes he does the miraculous in our physical bodies. Why do we pray when someone gets sick? Because we believe that God does the miraculous, and he does. But then there are individuals who try and profit from that. I think of somebody back in the early time when I was just first at this church. She was a single mom, a really, really good mom. She was racked with cancer, very advanced stage four. And she came to me and said, I just really want to live long enough to raise my kids. And I found a faith healer, and for a certain amount of money, he's going to pray and heal me. And I said, oh, don't go to him. I don't know who he is, but if he's 
cashing a check. We're not interested. Come to the elders. You remember in James 5, 16 to 20, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective and the sick can go to the elders and pray. And then he compares it to Elijah who is a man just like us, had a nature just like us and he prayed and it did not rain for three and a half years and then he prayed again and the skies opened up. And she said, no. You won't guarantee my healing, but he has guaranteed my healing. Cynically, I noticed a couple of weeks later when I did her service, he didn't show up. When I buried her, he wasn't there to comfort the kids. That's not most, but that's a few. In contrast, we have this man who is healed. And how does Peter act? Not like that charlatan I just told you about. Let me read how Peter acts, verse 12. Actually, I'm going to back up and read verse 11 and then 12. Well, he clung to Peter and John, the healed man. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. That's the way to point to Jesus. Imagine the temptation of Peter. Peter could have said something like this. You know, remember my first sermon, 3,000 came to Christ. Remember Jeff's first sermon, all 10 fell asleep. You remember there was a man 41 years old he had never walked, and I touched him, and the man is healed. You know, there are apostles, and then there's me. He could have done that, but he didn't. He pointed everything to Jesus. That's the way you and I ought to serve. That's the way you and I ought to live. When the worship team, and I know they do this so well, when they lead us in worship, they lead us into the throne room of God, they're not saying, hey, I'm really good at this guitar. Or I'm really good at singing. It's about Jesus. When you lead a connection care group or you volunteer in the nursery or children's church or one-way club or Gen 180 or young adults or, or whatever area, women uh, of real devotion or a men's Bible study, it's, it's not about us. It's about pointing people to Jesus, having people exalt Jesus, having people grow in Jesus. And having said that and believe it, we also want to encourage one another. Doesn't that, or isn't that the meaning of Hebrews 10, 24? That we are to encourage one another in love and good deed. We are to help people in their walk. And so it's kind of a both and. If somebody serves, it's always pointing to Jesus. That's what Galatians 1, 8 to 10 says. We serve for an audience of one. And yet Hebrews 10, 24 says that we are to spur one another on in love and good deeds, encourage one another to use the spiritual gifts. God is exalted, but we also encourage one another to take that next step in our relationship with Jesus. Peter doesn't see the miracle as only, it would be enough, as only healing the man, he sees the miracle as always pointing to Jesus. Now, I wasn't in here when you all took communion, but I was at 8 o'clock, and 
As long as Isaiah didn't switch things up, he gave his devotion from the book of John. Now, we always call the book of John the gospel of John, and right we should, but there's like a kind of secondary title for John, and it's called the book of signs. And there's seven major signs in the gospel of John, and every sign is for the purpose, not just for those who are healed or those who get to eat or Lazarus who gets to come out of the grave, The signs always point to something greater. They always point to Jesus. That's what the whole book of John is all about. The book of signs points to Jesus, that we might exalt Jesus, that we might know Jesus, that we might grow in Jesus. In fact, Peter tells us that all of Scripture points to Jesus. Let me read to us verses 18, 19, and then 22. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouths of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, and he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet, that's Jesus, like me, from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So what Peter says is when you're reading the prophets, All the prophets, they point to Jesus. Moses said when you're reading the law, which he is the human author that God had him pen the law. When you read the law, it's always pointing to Jesus. He just told us how to interpret the entire Old Testament. He just gave us a hermeneutical principle as Christ followers. Everything we read in Scripture, when we read the Old Testament, read it with Christological eyes. Read it in light of the fact that God came in the second person, fully God, fully man, the hypostatic union. He lived a perfect life, died, rose again, and is now seated at the right-hand side of the Father. He offers his atonement, his payment for our sin. Read all of Scripture in light of Jesus. That's true from Genesis all the way to Revelation. He's told us that it's all about Jesus. So when the man is healed, it points to Jesus. When the elders pray and someone is healed, it points to Jesus. How does the Psalter end? Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It all points to Jesus. Not only does it point to Jesus, but it points to our need for Jesus. That's what he says in the text. He says in verse 19, Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And then if you don't, verse 23, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet Jesus shall be destroyed. The miracle points to Jesus and our need for Jesus to be redeemed by Jesus, to, to turn, to repent, metanoia. And if we don't, we will be eternally destroyed in a place of torment called hell. Now, when we think of repent, it really has two parts. The first part is acknowledgement. It's a confession that we are less than God desires. Isaiah 118 says, though, our sin be a scarlet, may be made white as snow. We are sinners. Sin 
hamartia is one word. It just simply means missing the mark. There are other words for sin, but that's one. It's that archer shot where you miss the bullseye. What, what God desires, it's an attitude, or an action, a thought, a motive, an inactivity that is outside the will of God. That's sin. We confess that. And the second part is empowered by God's spirit. We turn away from that wrong attitude, action, thought, motive, inactivity, and towards the Lord. How are we saved? Only through Christ. What do the miracles point to? It points to Christ. What do we need more of? We need more Christ. And how does this man respond? Well, we'll see some of it when we get to Acts 4. But he responds a little bit in verse 8. It's really embarrassing. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Obviously, he has not been in church in 41 years. He doesn't know how to behave, does he? He's leaping and praising God. How do we respond when we have a touch of Jesus? If you are a born-again believer, you've been touched. You're the dead, dry bones that have been brought to life. How do you, I, we respond? Maybe somebody has been sick and you've prayed and God has alleviated some of the symptoms. Praise the Lord. Maybe you have a loved one, a relationship, and she or he does not know Christ. What do you do prior to telling them you pray because you know that God needs to move in her or his heart and open up their heart that they may by faith believe. And how do we respond? We praise and we leap and we rejoice in Jesus. That's the right response to who this Jesus is, the Jesus of whom Genesis to Revelation points. Every miracle points. Our lives being transformed ought to point to Jesus. And we ought to be the ones that are leaping and praising and rejoicing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Acts chapter 3 that reminds us that all of Scripture points to your Son. May we exalt him. May we be like Peter that always points to Jesus. May we encourage and spur one another on. May we be a church of prayer like the prophets, like the apostles, like the early church, going to prayer knowing that we need a touch of your spirit. May we be like Peter and John, not so busy in ministry than to do ministry. They saw somebody that others might not see, and they loved upon that individual. May that be true in our lives. May we be the church that glorifies your son. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.